Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. A loaded pod for you today. So we're going to chat with Doug Kide from the Herald about the Patriots mess in just a little bit. Plus, Connor Ryan from Boston.com and the Globe is going to preview the Bruins season with us. Like the NHL season is here, baby. And we need it. We need something else besides the Patriots. So really excited to preview the Beast season coming up with Connor Ryan in just a little bit. Before we get to Doug, we recorded with Doug early on Tuesday morning at 9.30. So I just wanted to get into, and Doug and I got into whether or not Mac Jones should remain the Patriots starter, of course, So, and why it's kind of a difficult decision to actually bench Mac. We'll get into that when I talk with Doug. But just to update you, Bill O'Brien at his press conference today, and he said that he anticipates Mac Jones starting on Sunday. He said, quote, it's not about one guy. He'd be the first to tell you that there's things he has to do better. Okay, so it appears Mac is still going to start on Sunday. But (laughs) it's really interesting that Bill O'Brien has to answer these questions at a press conference. All fair questions, but the offensive coordinator is answering these questions, whether or not Mac's going to start because he got benched the past two games, right? But it appears that Mac is still going to be the guy, I guess, at least for one more week. But the fact that this is such a hot topic sort of illustrates where the organization is right now. So Doug and I got into whether or not they should bench Mac and the message that it would send if they didn't bench Mac Jones. Doug and I got into that. So you hear that. Plus, it sort of there is a reason that it's significantly more difficult to bench Mac than to play Mac. And 
a certain other player played a role in why that's more difficult to do. So we'll get into that when I chat with Doug Kide in just a little bit. The other thing I wanted to get into, because this also came from the Patriots press availability today. So Karen Garigian from Mass Live asked Rod Mayo if it's been tough for the defense to constantly deal with deficits not of their own making and if it's weighing on the players. So here's what Mayo said to that. I would be lying if I said players don't feel some of that. At the same time, us as coaches, it's our job to remind them, and we're not on that side of the ball. Let's continue to get them the ball and see what happens, and that's pretty much the way we approach it. Okay, so this is an assistant coach saying this, not a player, okay? And basically, he's illustrating that, yes, there are issues right now, that the defense is upset, and why wouldn't they be, right? Think about this. The Patriots are giving up 4.6 yards per play. That ranks fifth in the NFL. They're giving up 3.6 yards per carry. That ranks sixth in the NFL. They give up just 24.5 yards per drive. That ranks fourth in the NFL. Their success rate is 40.4%. That is fifth in the NFL. The only thing they haven't done is forced turnovers. They're 31st in terms of turnover percentage, but that's it. If you wanted to nitpick with the Patriots defense, that would be what you'd be nitpicking on. So you're fifth in yards per play, you're sixth in yards per carry, fourth in yards per drive, fifth in success rate. This is a really good defense. And oh, by the way, this defense has been screwed over by the offense over and over again with the turnovers that if you look at it, opponents are starting their drives at the 30.1 yard line against the Patriots, 23rd in the NFL. Also, how about this number? The Patriots have defended 61 drives, tied for the most in the NFL. So they're spending the most time out there defensively. They're putting up these ridiculous numbers and they're getting no results. Think, how how would you feel if you were a Patriot defender right now where you're just sitting out there, you're doing your job to use the Bill Belichick cliche, right? But you keep getting screwed over by your offense. It's amazing how good this defense has been considering those circumstances. And I imagine that's going to be so difficult to play defense for this team right now, knowing that you're getting nothing from an offensive perspective, right? So when your coordinator is saying that, essentially admitting that, yeah, this is not an easy thing to deal with, they're going to do their best job trying to handle it. But it's sort of an, an indicator of how the defense feels. When the defensive coordinator or the default defensive coordinator, whoever you want to point to, Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo, both, of course, pivotal parts of the defense, when he's saying this publicly, it sort of tells you, yeah, like we got some issues going on right now. So another interesting thing is, Mayo was asked about Bill Belichick's comments from earlier this week saying that they needed a reset and they needed to start over. Mayo said, (laughs) I don't think honestly from a defensive perspective that full reset is necessary. I think honestly us moving forward, us getting on to the Raiders is the best thing for us. So when your defensive coordinator, the coach in waiting, which everybody thinks he's the coach in waiting, is saying this, it kind of tells you, yeah, we're good over here. Okay, figure out the offense. Okay, we're good on this side of the ball. And it, he, I mean, that's the right answer. What is Mayo supposed to say? Yeah, guys, have you looked at our numbers? We're actually a really good defense. We don't have to reset anything over on this side of the ball. But it appears that this thing is getting ugly. And Mayo saying this publicly is sort of the first indication to me that Mayo, first of all, I mean, as the coach in waiting, probably learning a lesson from this, right? Hey, you know what I need? Like when I coach eventually, when I'm the head coach of the team, I need weapons. And you know what I'm not going to do? 
Because Bill O'Brien was here before, I'm not just going to hire that guy as the offensive coordinator. I'm actually going to have interviews. Like, I'm actually going to look at maybe guys that work for Sean McVay or guys that work for Kyle Shanahan, right? I'm just not going to a guy because he used to work for this organization. I'm actually going to have, you know what I'm going to call this thing? It's called an interview process and try to get like a great offensive mind to be my offensive play caller so I can deal with the defense and the decisions that come along with the team, unlike what Bill Belichick is doing right now when he just brings Bill O'Brien back. And I know Robert Kraft is part of that as well, but you get my point on this. But what this feels like to me right now, and I don't even think this is slightly hyperbolic, it feels like the Jets from last year, where the Jets defense was so good and Zach Wilson was just continually putting that defense in a bad spot And it's just deflating as one unit when you're great. Like the Jets defense was great last year. This Patriots defense, and we'll see going down the road here without Judon and Christian Gonzalez if they can still be great. But so far this season, they've been an exceptional unit. They've been really good. You can nitpick certain things. I get all that. But when you just look at sort of this situation going forward, I feel like it's going to get really ugly on the defensive side of the ball if the defensive coordinator, or one of the defensive coordinators essentially, is already admitting this. The other thing I'd say about Mayo... Is if there was ever a discussion like after Belichick, who's taken over, Bill O'Brien or Gerard Mayo, Gerard Mayo could just be like, yeah, um, Robert, you, you saw the offense, right? I mean, they're the worst offense in the NFL. Why would you give this guy the job? Like a very easy process in terms of debating who you'd rather have, Gerard Mayo or Bill O'Brien. Oh, yeah. And you look at his resume. Um, at least I have a clean resume. Bill O'Brien had issues throughout his coaching career, right? All right. So a lot more to get into, but I thought it was necessary to put that out there. It appears Mac Jones is starting in on Sunday. I don't like the idea. Doug Kite and I will talk about that next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Herald, it is Doug Kide. Doug, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing better than the Patriots right now. <laughs> That's for sure. I never thought I'd get to this point, Doug. Like, I wasn't one of these crazy people who thought the Patriots could win the Super Bowl or something. Like, I wasn't wearing Patriots pajamas before the season. But I may have said on the podcast, like, hey, maybe I think they could be a playoff team. And now it just seems like, whoa, this thing has gotten to the level that I don't think any Patriots fan, even the most negative Patriots fan, expected to get to this point where they're 1-4 and and they've kicked a field goal against the Cowboys and they didn't score against the New Orleans Saints in back-to-back games. Just crazy to see it come to this bad of a point in the season already and we're only five games in yeah i mean after that game uh, i just they, they were so inept on offense couldn't do anything they're trying this like death by a thousand cuts and they don't have knives sharp enough to even do that on offense and i was just thinking like this has got to be the worst offense in the nfl like i can't imagine anyone being worse and that's why i pulled up uh you know RB, rbsdontmatter.com, rbsdm.com to see that they had the lowest rush EPA per play and the lowest dropback EPA per play. And <laughs> I mean, quite honestly, like there's no other possible way that this team uh, could rank right now because they can't run the ball. Ramondre Stevenson's averaging 2.8 yards per carry. They can't throw the ball. Juju Smith-Schuster is averaging 6.1 yards per catch, which oh. is almost like historically low, um, you know, with, with as many targets as he has. And it's it's almost hard to believe or hard to figure out or imagine how it got to this bad of a point because they weren't this bad early in the season. They weren't this bad last year with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, and they were pretty decent back in 2021. Um, and and honestly, like it's probably best that they're just this bad. But you know, you see Aaron Rodgers go down 
for the Jets. Like that gave them a shot at a playoff spot, essentially. Mm -hmm. You see the Bills, Matt Milano goes down. Like these teams are suffering injuries, but the Patriots are just way too bad to actually do anything about it. Yeah, you had that great stat too on Juju. You referenced the 6.1. What was it like four guys in the history of the league have on at least 25 targets averaged 6.1 yards per reception or worse? That's how bad it is for Juju right now. Yes, and one of them was Ty Montgomery, who's currently on this team, uh, <laughs> who who played like a third of his snaps that year at running back. So like you can barely even count that when you've got a running back in the mix there. But I mean, it was already bad for Juju, like heading into Week Five, and then I think he had like a two yard catch and a three yard catch or something like that. I was like, wow, that that number is dropping. It's yeah. it's going down by the week. So yeah, it, it's bad right now. I want to get into the receivers in a second, but you mentioned Montgomery. He had the famous John O. Smith play the other day where he gave the team an interception. He should be charged for that interception, not Mac Jones. But speaking of Mac Jones, the Patriots, of course, we referenced the fact that it was ugly again on Sunday. Mac Jones got pulled again. Bill Belichick said after the game, we need to make improvements from where we are. So we'll see what that entails. Weird schedule this week for the Patriots. So you do kind of wonder if they're actually going to make a quarterback change. Now, in terms of you have Will Greer, but you also have Bailey Zappi. And Zappi, I feel like the Patriots, they've kind of given him opportunities over the past two games. Now, Mac has also given him an opportunity with how poorly he's played. But Zappi, he has a 52.8 passer rating in the limited time. And if you go back to last year, by the way, you had a great number on Zappi, too. What was it? His adjusted completion percentage was it's like 47.8, I think. (laughs) By far the worst. 42.8, something like that. Yeah. Like the Kendrick Bourne throw and the Hunter Henry throw, it's like, dude, what what are you doing, man? Like take a little bit off, especially the Henry one. That thing was like a dart where it needed to be lofted a little bit. But speaking of Zappi, I was going back to last year and the two games he played against, right? The Lions, they win 29 to nothing. He had just one throw that was deemed a tight window throw. So with the closest defender, one yard or closer. So the point being, that was a really easy game for a quarterback to play. His expected completion percentage. Now, his actual was 81, but the expected was 77.7. So it kind of tells you like, hey, maybe Matt Patricia had a good game plan. And we'll see if maybe that that can rub off on Bill O'Brien. But even if you go to, say, for example, the Browns game. 165 out of his 309 yards came out of play action. So that's almost 54%. And also in that game, the his air yards per attempt was 5.9. So he's barely throwing the ball down the field. The other thing I look at with Zappi is if he's leading, he's basically Joe Montana or Tom Brady. 28 of 36 in his career, 77.8%, a 121.3 rating, 9.2 yards per attempt. Trailing, which the Patriots certainly spend most of their time trailing, yes. 22 of 51, 56.9%. And then the passer rating is 73.7. So Matt Jones has been so bad. So you can certainly justify a quarterback change. And I think if we got a similar version to the Bailey Zappi we saw in limited time last season in the preseason and in training camp and when he got his limited action this season, it would be an easy decision. But I almost feel like Zappi's been so bad too. I think that actually makes this decision even more difficult because it'd be easy to just say, hey, let's throw Mac on the bench because he's been so bad. We have this guy that was a reliable backup for us last year. He's not that right now. And then there's Will Greer, who's barely been with the organization. So I just, I don't know how easy making the quarterback change is when ordinarily it would be very easy to make that change. Yeah, I would actually kind of advocate for a quarterback change right now just because Mac Jones has been so bad. But 
eight, I almost feel like the Patriots took that option off the table when they cut Bailey Zappi out of training camp. They pushed all their chips in. They went all in on Mac Jones at that point and said, like, we are not going to hear Zappi chance. Like, Zappi is not going to compete for this role. He was cut out of training camp. We gave him an opportunity for all 31 other teams to claim him off of waivers. We do not need him. If if we want him, we'll give him every other team the opportunity to get him. So now to turn to your team and say like, hey, but actually that guy that we cut because he was so bad in training camp and so bad in preseason that we didn't even care if he was on our initial roster. He actually gives us a better chance to start than the guy who was the starter all summer. Like that's obviously a very bad look for this team. It's one they might have to show. It's one they might have to present uh, to the team just because Mac Jones has been so bad. But I mean, that's why I think even the leash has been so long for Mac Jones. But as you mentioned, I mean, when Bailey Zappi's coming into these games, he looks almost worse than Mac Jones has. And like yeah. and Mac Jones hasn't earned the opportunity to start in week six based on his last two performances. But when you put in Bailey Zappi and he's soaring passes to everyone like 10 feet over their head, he hasn't earned the opportunity either. So the issue, I didn't think that benching Mac Jones would be a possibility until after Will Greer had passed Bailey Zappi on the depth chart. But now they're in a really tough place with just how poorly Mac Jones has played. And I think they might actually be forced uh, to make a change here, give Bailey Zappi a chance. And like, I mean, if you're a Patriots fan who's, you know, been in a coma since before that Bears game last year, you're probably like, oh yeah, Bailey Zappi's great. He's He'd give us a much better opportunity. But like everything that's transpired over the last year with Bailey Zappi has been pretty disastrous. Um, and I don't know, I know he's being put in kind of a difficult situation to just be thrust into these games late. And maybe he's rusty, maybe, but like, he should be playing better than this. These are the opportunities that backup quarterbacks need. And I'm just not convinced that with a full week of practice as a starter, he's going to look that much better because he's not a good fit for this Bill O'Brien system. That's why he was cut. That's why he struggled. And now it seems like they probably will have to simplify things quite a bit again for Bailey Zappi. It worked last year for two games. Maybe it works for two games this year, but it's kind of funny. I was talking to someone. Um, I think it was when Zappi was cut. I was like, basically just you know someone within the organization like what the hell happened here or whatever and he was like you know what maybe people shouldn't have been so hard on that patrician joe judge because like they got decent play out of bailey zappy <laughs> for two games and maybe they had to scheme things up for him maybe they had to simplify things but like they are the ones who did that scheming and simplifying so uh i was among those who gave those guys a very hard time obviously the offense was terrible last year but it's worse this year so maybe we did give them too hard of a time yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe Patricia. I mean, he was awful, but Bill O'Brien has been pretty bad too. Yeah. But I really even think if you go back to the game against the Saints, if Zappi completes like those two passes that were wide open for him, it's oh, probably yeah. an, a very easy decision. Yes. Like coming out of yes. the game, Bill's probably answering questions about it, like where it actually makes more sense for him. Not that he'd like tip his hand at that particular right. point in time. But I think the reaction would be, hey, if Zappi completed that pass to Henry, if Zappi completed that pass to Kendrick Bourne, we'd all be saying, OK, this is obvious. You got to give him an opportunity, even though it's just two throws. But the fact that they were so bad, it's actually a decision, which just it really looks bad for Zappi. But you mentioned in terms of Mac, where it feels like you kind of do need to make a quarterback change based on how bad he's playing. And if you look at his numbers, PFF's um, turnover worthy plays most in the NFL with 12 
He had the pick six on, or excuse me, the pick six on Sunday. He had the fumble six against Dallas. He had a pick six against Dallas, throwing the ball across the field late. He had the worst passer rating in week five at 30.5. He was better than only Dorian Thompson Robinson the previous week in terms of his passer rating, back-to-back weeks with a passer rating south of 40. Last in success rate the past two weeks, last in EPA per play, last in completion percentage. And I get it's not all Mac, but he's actually getting worse. And it appears mm-hmm. right now to me, he looks broken. Like we got leaks coming out of his camp. I don't know why someone that's close yeah. to Mac is leaking information about basically saying that the weapons are garbage, which I mean, that's that's not the best thing to say, especially considering whoever it is it, within Mac's camp, like Max had to go back into the locker room and try to play with these guys who are his receivers. So I thought that was a bad look where somebody leaked it to Henry McKenna. And I just feel like right now he's broken. So that would be my argument to go to Zappi or to anybody else is that Max seems to be a broken quarterback. And I don't know if he can get it back this year. I guess the only good thing would be like the next opponent is the Raiders, but the Raiders just won on Monday Night Football and they only gave up 14 points to the Packers. So like any defense, I don't know if Matt can play well against right now, but I just feel like the reason to make the change is the quarterback, he looks broken. He just doesn't look right. He keeps, he kept saying that he can't be making these bad decisions and he just keeps doing it. Yeah. And I was I was talking to someone else around the league who's got ties to the Patriots. It isn't within the Patriots organization, but I was talking to him about Mac. And they were like, well, he's a physically limited quarterback who panics under pressure and makes bad decisions. And like that's just the absolute worst combination that you can have right now <laughs> in a quarterback. And that's not the Mac Jones that we saw in 2021. Not really the we a little bit more of the Mac Jones that we saw last year and full on the Mac Jones that we're seeing in 2023. But and that's just obviously not. A combination for success and a lot of people that i'm talking to have said it starts with the quarterback but obviously this is a combination of factors that are leading to this complete offensive demise of the patriots and i think number one b or two whatever you want to call it would definitely be the offensive line and um you know mac jones was playing better under pressure early this season but he's just under so much pressure now that i'm not sure if he could play significantly uh, better with, with all the pressure that he's getting. But no, I, I think, I mean, that that's my take too, is that he is so broken that I don't think that he's going to be fixed by just continuing to throw him out there. Like maybe, I don't even know what it would look like to just give him a couple of weeks off or something like that to see if he can regain his composure. And maybe by putting Bailey Zappi out there, he would struggle so much that then that would give Mac the opportunity to get back in there. Obviously, it's not a great situation there, but yeah, it just seems like he needs a break because that interception that he threw, the pick six on Sunday was just, it was just laughable. Like, why are you throwing that ball in that situation? Why are you stepping up into pressure? Like, and if you are going to step into pressure, just take the sack. Don't throw a duck directly to, you know, Tyron Matthew in that situation. It was just so bad and so egregious um, that I don't know. It's just, like I said, it's a hard pitch to the rest of the team to say, Hey, I know this guy has, you know, allowed the defense to score three times in the last two games, but he's still the guy that gives us the best chance to win. And I mean, I didn't really get into like, Will Greer's only been here for, he hasn't even been here for three weeks right now at at this point. I talked to him last week, asked him if he he was thinking about the depth chart. He was like, no, 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 I'm focused on learning the offense. Uh, And someone else had asked Bill Belichick about Will Greer beforehand, and he didn't really give much thought of Will Greer 
you know, moving up the depth chart at that point either. So maybe that changes now with how bad Mac was. And then, you know, Malik Cunningham would be the the fourth option. And that would obviously be the most exciting one, but I, he's not ready to, to start an NFL game at this point. He's still out there in practice wearing a white jersey. So I'm assuming most of his snaps are being taken at, at wide receiver, not at quarterback. That would certainly be very fun. I think that maybe whoever goes out there on Sunday, give Lee Cunningham some snaps at quarterback, yeah. like elevate him from the practice squad, get something in there. I think they should have done that against the Saints, actually, is to is to get someone else in there, mix them in with Mac Jones just because he'd been so bad against, against the Cowboys. So I don't know. I guess my my choice here would be Zappy plus Cunningham, or if Greer's ready, Greer plus Cunningham. Um, but no, I mean Max just broken, and I think that this is at least it makes the decision easy for the Patriots this offseason to not have to pick up that fifth year option and to just start over a quarterback again. Yeah, I mean that that certainly is probably the best news out of all this. Is it's obvious, right? It's not yeah. like. Hey, Mac was pretty good in year three. (laughs) We almost made the playoff. Should we bring him back? Like this decision is going to be incredibly easy for the Patriots to make. I'm completely with you on Malik Cunningham. I was on my pod on Sunday. I was bringing it up with James White. I said, why not? At least like have some sort of curveball. Your fastball, it's not really a fastball anymore. It's like 85 mile an hour fastball right down in the middle of the zone. I mean, it's not really working for you with Mac Jones. So why not that? The Will Greer portion of this is interesting though, because as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, like he's just been here with the team. How much of the playbook does he know? But honestly, like you mentioned earlier, when they put Zappi in last year with Patricia and Joe Judge, the offense was very simplified. Maybe you can do that. I mean, Greer's like at least, I mean, he's more talented than Bailey Zappi. He had an outstanding collegiate career, and I know that doesn't mean much. And he had a really good preseason, too, if you put any stock into that. So I wonder, like, I guess because Zappi was so bad in training camp and was so bad in the preseason that maybe I mean desperate times call for desperate measures maybe it would be Will Greer I I mean I don't hate it honestly I would be I, I'm the current plan is for me to travel to, to Las Vegas for that game there uh, there's some some moving pieces here with my daughter that could affect that um but I would rather see Will Greer starting than Bailey Zappi because I think we all know what it would look like if Bailey Zappi's out there we know what it's gonna look like if Mac Jones is out there at least Will Greer would give you this kind of mystery a little bit. And yeah, like let him run the plays that he knows. If you're going to simplify things anyway, like you said for Bailey Zappi, simplify them for Will Greer and see what he can give you before then you go to option three with Bailey Zappi. And I do think that, you know, in some circumstances that might be looked at as unfair to, to move the third string guy up to first string and have him leapfrog the second string guy. But I don't think it is with the way that Bailey Zappi's performed over the, the spring and, you know, training camp and summer and, you know, being inserted for Mac Jones in these games. I, like I said earlier, he doesn't deserve the opportunity to start based on how he's performed. And I don't know. I mean, this quarterback room has been really kind of weird all year. Um, it was it was kind of funny. And I guess I could say this now, like in in the Cowboys game, when Mac Jones was coming out of the game and the cameras showed you know, Bailey Zappi warming up. You actually saw Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi, like they said something to each other. There was like some sort of line of communication between them. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at every single instance of them being three feet apart, you know, since the spring, but that was the first time that I'd actually seen those guys speak like all, all summer and spring and everything. Really? Um, which I thought was strange that it was in that specific scenario, but they don't really warm up together. It's just kind of, a, it seems like it's, 
maybe a little bit of a weird vibe in the quarterback room. But that's changed a little bit now that Will Greer's around. Will Greer's in the locker room talking to Mac Jones. He warms up and talks to Bailey Zappi a lot. Uh, I think that maybe just the way that all of this has unfolded over the last few weeks has made the quarterback room maybe a little bit less uncomfortable. But, I mean, throw in the fact that, you know, Trace McSorley was here in the summer, then they bring in Matt Corral. That doesn't work out. They bring in Ian Book for like a day. That doesn't work out. Try to bring back Matt Corral. Then they've got uh, Will Greer in here. It's just been kind of a messy quarterback situation overall since the summer. Yeah, and it, that uh, vision I, I remember is like Mac was like laughing when yeah Zappy he was, was going, smiling. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was kind of a weird vibe to begin with. So I don't yeah. and Zappy too. Like he probably feels like he's better than Mac based on how he performed last year, even right. though he sucked in the preseason. And it's not like he's played well when he's gotten into these games. I, I will say that. I feel like if you look at these four guys, if you had to grade a Mac Jones, Will Greer, Bailey Zappi, and Malik Cunningham, who do you think actually has the best arm? Like, where does Mac rank on this group? Oh, man, I would go, I guess I'd probably go Greer, Jones, Zappi, Malik. Malik's mechanics are just all over the place right now. Yeah, Like, they, there were times in the summer where he would throw and he'd be like, ah, that does not, it certainly doesn't look like, you know, the way that the Patriots teach mechanics and stuff like that. So I would probably still put Mac too, but I, I don't know. Greer and Mac would probably be a, a little bit neck and neck. It's, it is tough because Zappy definitely doesn't have, you know, as strong of an arm as Mac Jones does. Yeah. Really Cunningham doesn't. So yeah, it, that's a good question though, honestly. <laughs> like it wouldn't be an award that you'd brag about. It was, it's, no. it's, it's probably one of the position players, honestly, that has like the strongest arm <laughs> of the team. I'm trying to think like if anybody played quarterback or anything like that, like, Edelman used to play quarterback when he was on the team. Like maybe Edelman has a stronger arm than these guys do based on what we've seen from these guys, because man, it's, it's, it's not very impressive. All right. So I, I we'll might, s- I might trust Julian Edelman to run the offense a little bit better right <laughs> yeah. now. Maybe they can sign him off the Fox set to play quarterback. That would be something. That would be something. Okay. So we'll see what happens with this yeah. quarterback position. We're recording right now. It's 9 20 AM on Tuesday. We'll see if we get a decision before the end of the week. If Mac Jones is being sent to the bench or not. But I did want to get to the receivers here. We brought up Juju and he left that game because of concussion protocol. Then you look at it, the rest of these receivers, Bourne, Henry, Douglas, Parker, Gasecki, and Ramondre out of the backfield, all have more receiving yards. And on top of that, you have Julian Edelman, who we just mentioned, saying on Colin Coward's show that he was surprised that Jacoby was gone. He still can't figure out why he's gone. And if you look at it, so Devin McCourty said something similar in the offseason, which is these are like two pillar members of the organization for the second dynasty. I mean, you could argue Devin McCourty was the most important defensive player. I mean, Hightower made huge plays in big games, but he was kind of the leader of that defense for so long. And we all know what Edelman meant to this team, right? So Myers this season, after last night's game, 274 yards with three touchdowns. Juju and Parker combined, 215 yards, no touchdowns, Okay. Parker, as we know historically, actually, the past three years, he was dead last in separation. He's actually third to last this year at two yards of separation per target. We're still waiting on Thornton. Bourne, I feel like when he's involved, he's been good. Douglas, we know that he left that game too. He's shown some signs. But I'm just trying to think like going back to the offseason, DeAndre Hopkins was available. He's 15th at receiving yards at 356. Bourne leads the Patriots at 218, which is 55th. He... All he got, Hopkins, was two for 26, 10.9 guarantee. It's not much money, especially considering the Patriots had money in the offseason. 
So when we watch these games, and we all thought before the season, they desperately needed a number one receiver. Bill obviously valued Hopkins. He had him in the building in the facility for two days. So it's just, is this just like old school? They were so stubborn with, hey, this is our number. This is our offer. This is what we're going to give DeAndre Hopkins. And I'm not saying the Patriots are four and one with DeAndre Hopkins, but they're at least more competitive. And at least you have somebody that the defenses are thinking about right now, even if he isn't the Hopkins from a couple of years ago. By these numbers, he's still a productive player for Tennessee. Like this to me was an easy thing. You had more money than Tennessee. And this isn't any of us second guessing it. We all thought at the time they should go after DeAndre Hopkins. They got lucky because all these other teams, the real contenders, right? The Chiefs out there and some of these other teams, like the Eagles didn't need them because they had A.J. Brown already, right? And they had Devontae Smith. Like Buffalo didn't have the salary cap space. Like that's a team he should have wanted to play for, right? But he didn't have a lot of options because of the salary cap situation. It just feels like this was such an obvious move. The Patriots are in. It looks so bad to me right now because right now you have one of, if not the worst, receiving cores in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I think they were just stuck on their number. And if he was going to go over that, then they weren't going to match it. And clearly they should have because it's a reasonable deal, like you mentioned, for DeAndre Hopkins. And I would even go back to Jacoby Myers this this spring. And I know that you know that's been rehashed to death, but like, Everyone was expecting him to get 15, 16, $17 million per year as the number one wide receiver right. on the market. And he wound up getting $11 million per year. And uh, I saw, um, you know, there was a tweet from Matt Chatham where he said that, you know, Patriots fans would be second guessing even a Jacoby Myers deal if they did get out to this same hot start. And I just disagree with that. Like the deal, like $11 million per year for Jacoby Myers was so reasonable. It seemed like such a no brainer at the time. And then you give Juju Smith Schuster the same amount of money. And I know how the Patriots felt that they thought that he could give them more after the catch ability and more upside to the offense and everything like that. And now it's like, well, how's that worked out for you? He's averaging 6.1 yards per catch. It seems like he can barely run out there, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a few different things that they could have done here with the wide receiver for, I would still say that I was expecting this to look better based on even just last year and the year before, because it's not that dramatically different of a wide receiver core than Mac Jones had in 2021 and 2022, where it's, you don't have the number one, but you've got this, you know, a bunch of starting caliber pass catchers that you can mix in the offense and kind of mix and match against whatever defense you're facing. And so far, obviously that's just clearly not worked out. I'll also say that there's this Patriots team is, is terrible, but they also have terrible luck. Because, like, you lose your two best defenders in Matthew Judon and Christian Gonzalez. Your best offensive lineman, Michael Wenu, is going on and off the field with this ankle injury. And then they did it to themselves in week, what was it, week two, where they took Demario Douglas off the field after fumbling. But then your best wide receiver is this sixth-round slot receiver out of Liberty, Demario Douglas, and he catches this 24-yard pass from Mac Jones or whatever it was, 21, 24, whatever it was. And he gets clubbed in the head with the forearm, tries to keep playing through it, is clearly concussed and has to be taken off the field. Like, it just, it feels like every single time that something is going remotely right for the Patriots, an injury occurs, and then you have to throw it out the window. And, like, obviously they would be very bad even without all of these injuries, I think. But it's certainly not helping things. And these injuries are only compounding the Patriots problems because like 
you don't want Demario Douglas to be your best wide receiver. Clearly, right. you don't want a six-round rookie to be your best wide receiver. But the reality is right now that he is your best wide receiver. And it felt like as soon as he left that game on Sunday, that the Patriots had absolutely zero chance to move the ball because despite the fact of him being five foot eight, he's your best deep threat on this offense right now. He's the only one who can separate in man coverage. And he's the only one in this offense who can actually make plays with the ball in his hand after making a catch. So I don't know. Obviously, hopefully, obviously, you hope that the Patriots just do what's best for Demario Douglas's health heading into this game. Right. But for the Patriots, they have to be hoping and praying that that he's ready from this concussion uh, to play. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, like honestly, this is this is the point that we're at. I'm like, eh, Jalen Ragor. Like, at least the, at least that'll mean that he'll get a chance. Yeah. <laughs> like, Former first round pick, right? Tyquan Thornton, maybe. And this is the other point that we're at right now. I might have more faith in Jalen Ragor making plays for the Patriots than I do in Tyquan Thornton because, like, I've seen an entire season of Tyquan Thornton not making plays for the Patriots. I saw an entire summer of him coming on and on and off the field with injuries, not being very effective when he was on the field. Like, at least Jalen Ragor is this complete unknown that maybe can stretch the field for the Patriots. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if Demario Douglas and Juju Smith-Schuster can't play on Sunday, Jalen Ragor will probably get one of those spots. And then we'll see where Tyquan Thornton's at with his health. He did not practice last week, which came as maybe a little bit of a surprise, uh, but maybe that kind of pushes him into the lineup as well. And at least you're getting new blood in there because you know, like Kendrick Bourne, yes, ideally he would probably be your third receiver in this offense. Right. He was not doing anything. And Devontae Parker is doing only, you know, slightly more than Juju Smith-Schuster right now. So at least you can mix some new pieces in here. But I mean, one more point on the Devontae Parker th- and on the uh, the uh, DeAndre Hopkins thing. They bring in DeAndre Hopkins for the visit. And then before he signs, they give Devontae Parker this contract extension, which oh. you know is like it was a pretty good deal for a wide receiver, but it was completely unnecessary. Like at least see what he looks like this season before giving him this contract extension. And I don't think it really did play into the DeAndre Hopkins thing at all, but at least you have had a little bit more more money to give DeAndre Hopkins if you don't give Parker that extension. Well, yeah, and one of the arguments was, well, you know, Parker and Hopkins do similar things. It's like, yeah, except Hopkins is way better at those things. (laughs) Hopkins is like one of the best contested catch guys in the history of the NFL. You can throw the ball to him every time he has somebody draped on him and he's still going to catch the ball. And the Parker thing too, the extension, when I saw that come out, I'm like, man, Like, this means that they're not going to get Hopkins. It was bad news. (laughs) And the other component to that is, think about this, the value. Like, if you traded Parker at the deadline, there's no chance you would get a third-round pick back. And that's what you gave up for Parker. And the other element, you mentioned Douglas, and I say this with all due respect to Douglas, because I actually think, to the Patriots' credit, which you don't give them a lot of credit for their recent history with receivers, he looks like somebody that could play for a while in the NFL. Like, as you mentioned, he's got, he's explosive. He can get down the field. Like, I'm really intrigued by him. But it almost feels like to me, when the Red Sox this year, they lost Yu Chang. And at the time, I'm like thinking like, this is a big loss. The Red Sox lost Yu Chang. It's like, it's Yu Chang. This guy, <laughs> later on, he'd be DFA. And it's like, this is Yu yeah. Chang. This is a six round receiver. That's like a critical loss for the Patriots, which brings me back to your point about Thornton. So somebody pointed out to me on Twitter when I was talking about like Jacoby Myers and comparing him to Parker and Juju. It's like, look at Pickens. So George Pickens goes number 52 in the same draft as Tyquan Thornton. Thornton goes pick 50. Pickens this season, 
and he's playing in a bad offense with a bad offensive coordinator in Matt Canada. Like that guy is really bad at his job. 393 receiving yards, 12th among receivers, 17.9 yards per reception, eighth with a minimum of 12 targets, 6.3 yak per reception. Okay, his yak per reception is higher than Juju's yards per reception. Okay, <laughs> that yak per reception is eighth in the NFL. This guy is just incredibly explosive. So it's it just feels like it's all these moves that have all added up. You could have had Pickens in front of Thornton. This isn't second. Like everybody said it at the time. No, pick the guy from Georgia. And then once yeah. the Steelers pick the guy from Georgia, everyone's like, oh, man, this guy is going to be a great receiver. We see it all the time. But it's all these things, Doug, have added up in terms of where you're at, where we just mentioned we're saying, what can they do if they don't have Demario Douglas on Sunday? That's where this organization is at because they've missed on so many moves over the past few years. Yeah, and I mean, George Pickens, heading into last year's draft, I was talking to someone about him. Like They said that you know he was regarded as the number one wide receiver in that class before he suffered the injury uh, during the 2021 season. So it, you know, I know that there was some like mysterious off-field things with George Pickens. I think that ultimately that's probably why the Patriots passed on him. I know that he wasn't a favorite within that within that personnel department within the Patriots. But I mean, for me, so you take a chance on that same draft in Jack Jones in the fourth round, who yeah. had, you know, obvious off-field issues that have now creeped up again during his NFL career, not only with the arrest at Logan Airport, but, you know, the weird thing where he walked off the field during practice. So, like, that's only two rounds later. I know that, like, a second-round pick is so much more valuable than a fourth-round pick, but if you're willing to take a chance on Jack Jones in the fourth round, like, take a chance on the wide receiver who's clearly more talented than, than anyone else in the class in the second round. And then you also go fast-forward to this year where they take a same similar chance on Keishon Booty in the sixth round, who had his own off-field issues that were, you know, even more obvious than George Pickens. And clearly sixth round versus second round is very different. But if you're willing to take chances on, on off-field issues, then like you can't only take them in the fourth and sixth round, take them on the really high upside guy in the second round as well. So yeah, I mean, that, like you said, that was obvious to everyone at the time. And I will mention, because I just kind of forgot to mention him before, Keishon Booty probably should get a chance as well this week. Um, I agree. If Smith Schuster and Demario Douglas can't play, the one competing aspect of that is that I think the Patriots view him as there is an X receiver um, in the same world as Devontae Parker. So Devontae Parker's healthy. So I'm not sure if Keishon Booty would necessarily start, but that's why Keishon Booty played so much in week one and has been a healthy scratch ever since is that he is that backup X to Devontae mm -hmm. Parker. Devontae Parker didn't play week one. He's been in the lineup ever since. But I would think that uh, Booty would at least be active if those two guys can't play. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see if... I would just, for me, i just go youth movement. And if Douglas can play, obviously I'd play Douglas. I'd play Booty just to see what these guys can give you. And then I'd play Bourne because I think he's... Yeah. And I'm not saying this is a big achievement, but I think he's their best receiver. So I would just play... Those three guys. Uh, the other component, when you mentioned Thornton, I was thinking back to remember Macro's press conference after the draft. He's like, you want fast guys? You draft Taekwon. I don't think there's <laughs> many guys, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, I don't think there's many guys faster than Taekwon. It was just like weird. It's like he had this like glued into his head that, hey, we need to draft a fast receiver. And it feels like that's why they drafted Taekwon Thornton is because they wanted to improve team speed. Yeah, the Jack Jones thing, what's going on with him too? Like, when is he coming back? It just feels I, this week. Yeah. Could he be back? Um, I think Jeff Howe from The Athletic put out that it would be two more weeks after last week. So maybe Man. not this week, but, but the week after. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen him moving around 
We've seen him kind of walk by us and he's been doing some work on a side field. So certainly doesn't look like he's too far off. Uh, but I mean, yeah, obviously the Patriots could certainly use him because then yeah. that would mean that you've got JC Jackson, Jack Jones on the outside and Jonathan Jones in the slot. Like if you had into the season with those three guys as your cornerbacks, like obviously taking Christian Gonzalez out of the mix, you'd think that you'd be in pretty good shape there at cornerback. So at some point they'll be in good shape at cornerback as long as there's not any more injuries. Uh, and that should help. But I mean, a lot of the defensive issues on Sunday, I thought extended well past Gonzalez and Judon being out of that game. Like they couldn't tackle, they couldn't defend the run. It was just all sorts of things going wrong, even beyond who was playing on the boundary at cornerback and who was playing on the edge uh, with, with Judon out. Yeah, even the special teams like Jabril Peppers, who I love Jabril Peppers, yeah. but he's fair catching the ball to four. And then he and then he like yeah. botched one of them. Like, I don't know what's going on with with that situation. But I want to get back to you mentioned earlier, like all the EPA success rate stats for the Patriots. They're all really bad. And yeah. I just look at so Mac Jones is 29th in dropbacks that come out of play action, 16.9%, 29th of, as I said, 34. And look, part of that is, of course, the fact that, I mean, you're not going to use a lot of play action where you're down three touchdowns every game. But the number is 69%, 99.6 passer rating. The RPO game, which we heard so much about in the summer, that's been non-existent. And mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't help that the personnel is not great. Like, you bring in guys like Juju who hasn't worked out. You had to trade for Verdarian Lowe before the season. Riley Reef went down <laughs> with, with an injury, right? So Bill O'Brien, if you look at him, his offense in terms of points per game in the NFL, it's averaged around 17th. And one top 10 scoring offense in his career, and that was when he was with the Patriots in 11 with Brady and Gronk, which I think Doug, you, I, and Jamie, who's producing this podcast, we all could have had a top 10 scoring offense with Brady Gronk <laughs> that year, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was a pretty talented team. So I just, I wonder, so he never had a top 10 scoring offense in Houston. I just wonder, and maybe it's just the answer is, hey, it's impossible with this group to judge the play caller, but I, what has he done? Like, really, what has he done to improve anything? It's been a disappointment. I think I, he, he's, I think he is very hamstrung by the offensive line. Like every play call has to be with the idea in mind that, you know, Mac Jones is going to get pressured in 2.5 seconds or less. So maybe I think that that's one big part of it. The other big part of it is just that they have, like you've mentioned, been behind so often in games. The only game that they've led is that week three game against the Jets that they won. Like that's the only game so far that they have had a lead. So I think that that definitely affects your play calling as well. So I'm not sure if we can fully judge Bill O'Brien. I do think, though, obviously, that we all expected this dramatic improvement just from going from Matt Patricia and Joe Judge to Bill O'Brien, and that has clearly not been the case so far this season, Um, that it has not been that difference maker that we all expected. But I don't know. I mean, I think that this is where you talk about some of those offensive line moves that they they made this year because that is, I think, one of the biggest things that's affecting not only Mac Jones but Bill O'Brien and his play calling. I mean, we all thought at the time, like, they needed a right tackle, and all they did was sign Riley Reef, Calvin Anderson, and then drafted City Sow, and then they have to trade, as you mentioned, for Vidarian Lowe and Tyrone Wheatley. I I mean, I don't know how much longer this Vidarian Lowe experiment can go. Uh, it certainly hurts that Cole Strange is hurt right now, and then Michael Wenu left the game with an ankle injury. But, like, I don't know. I, I, I tweeted something about, you know, changing quarterbacks, and I think someone mentioned that, like, well, first, you'd, I'd like to see what like a different offensive line combination would look like or different receivers or whatever. Like, They've played nine offensive linemen so far this season. Like, There are only two guys in the room who haven't started yet, and that's Tyrone Wheatley 
and Jake Andrews or haven't played considerable considerable snaps this season. So unless you want to bench David Andrews for Jake Andrews, unless you want to put Tyrone Wheatley in there, which fine, put Ty- Tyrone Wheatley in there. Like there's not that many more offensive line combinations that you can use than they when they what they've had so far this season. And it hurts that Trent Brown's play is up and down right now. It hurts that Cole Strange, when he was playing, wasn't very good and now yeah. he's gotten injured. Uh, Michael Wenu hasn't totally looked like himself so far this season. Now he's injured again. And Calvin Anderson was bad at right tackle. Barry Lowe has been worse at right tackle. And now I think that you should probably start Riley Reef at right tackle, but then you don't know who's playing those guard spots because I know Bill Belichick loves Antonio Maffi. He's really struggled so far this season. So I don't know how much longer you can even have him in that starting lineup. It's just, it's a disaster that's getting worse by the week as the injuries you know, make this situation worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And the Cole strange thing, it's a good point. He's been banged up. He wasn't good. Yeah. And you go back to last year, he didn't grade out well. And that's yeah. a guy that you spent a first round pick on. If you're going to spend a first round pick on a guard, yeah, no disrespect to guards around the league, but you better make sure he's good. And if Cole strange isn't good, that's a major problem for this organization going forward, especially considering like you had a guy on the team in Shaq Mason and you yeah. kept Remember, like the way they've handled the whole thing is weird. Going back to Joe Tooney, remember they franchised him when yep. they could have traded him? Like yep. it didn't make any. And then, you know, he walks in the next offseason. He goes to Kansas City. It's just weird how they've dealt with that sort of position group, kind of like the receiving group. So and then the like it's almost like nothing has gone right for this team besides Christian Gonzalez. And then he gets hurt. Even if yeah. you look at the kicking situation, right? I'm not saying I'm writing off Chad Ryland, but. He's four of eight. He's last in the NFL in percentage. And Nick Folk is out here 13 for 13. So even that decision looks like. And wasn't Ryland, correct me if I'm wrong, he had some issues during training camp too, right? Like he wasn't the most yeah. accurate guy then. He wasn't perfect. I mean, I that's one where like, it's very easy to second guess it based on, you know, the numbers right now. Like right. you mentioned, Nick Folk, 13 for 13. He's perfect on extra points as well. Whereas Chad Ryland is four of eight. But I mean, I everyone knew that they needed a new kicker heading into the season just because like Nick Folk couldn't handle kickoffs and they didn't really trust him on anything 50 yards or deeper. But Chad Ryland's missing a lot of these kicks because all of these field goals are long distance attempts because the Patriots can't move the ball down the field. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an issue that <laughs> 350 yarders. Are. He's attempted I mean, 350 like, yarders. That's the thing. That's the reason why I can't get on Chad Ryland too hard yeah. because a lot of these misses are deeper. The, the one on Sunday, obviously an NFL kicker should be able to make a 48 yarder, but I talked to him after the game and he was saying that, you know, he thought he had it lined up, right. He thought he hit it right. And everything like that. He kicked it. It hit a gust of wind and flew off. And obviously that's going to a deeper field goal, a 48 yard field goal. The wind is just going to affect it more. And he's learning on, on the fly as a, as a first year NFL kicker and everything like that. So I still can't criticize that decision too much, but Clearly, it looks very bad on paper right now with Nick Fulk being probably the most accurate kicker in the NFL and Chad Ryland being four of eight. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like you said, absolutely. Like, who's the best player on this team right now? Like, who's the best non-injured player on the Patriots right now? Oh, that's a fantastic question because the best two players are actually injured. It yeah. would like the the answer going back to last year would be Ramondre, but it's certainly not him. Right. Hasn't been him this year. No. I mean, Uche's had his moments as like a pass rusher, but we know he's, yeah. you know, limited against the run. Uh, D- Duggar got beat for a touchdown last week. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's a great. I mean, I guess Bentley's been solid. Yeah. Like it would probably, it would probably David Andrews. 
Yeah, maybe, like, but Andrews is is part of that. Like, because Michael Wenu would be a, an answer too, but not only he's hurt and he's struggled so far this season. So I think I might say Juwan Bentley. Yeah, yeah that's... I- I think it's probably Bentley, which Jabril is a, Peppers is up there, yeah. but he, like you said, he's, I don't know. Yeah. Peppers or Bentley. That's rough. That, that's yeah. That's hard times. Yeah. And going back to the Ryland thing too, I was just pointing out it's bad luck. The fact that Nick folks, 13 for 13 and this guy's four for eight, unfortunately. And look, he's got a big leg. I'm sure he'll be fine yeah. long-term, but I want to ask you about this. So trading deadline, I don't expect the Patriots to turn things around quickly here. So Kendrick Bourne is up after the season. They didn't extend him, but they extended Parker. Duggar doesn't have an extension. Uche doesn't have an extension. I don't think that you'd want to get rid of these guys that are like good talents on the team that are relatively young, although Duggar is older than you think because of how long he was playing in college. Hunter Henry's a free agent. I can't can't imagine you get anything for Parker as we alluded to early, but how many of these guys do you think we see go or are the Patriots kind of quiet at the trading deadline? To me, it's like I, I would just acknowledge you're in a free rebuild or a full rebuild and see what you can get back for some of these players. Would you be surprised if Bourne and Hunter Henry are traded, maybe somebody off the defense? Or do you think they'll be more conservative at that point? I I wouldn't be surprised if they if they trade someone away, especially if it continues going down this path. Like if they clearly have no chance whatsoever of making a comeback, then you might as well. And I think that Josh Uche would be one that I would look at, um, just because he's not the type of player that the Patriots typically pay, like a situational pass rusher, a third down pass rusher. He's probably one of the best in the NFL. He's their best pure pass rusher on the team. You know, just from a pass rushing perspective, I think he's even better than Matt Judon in that role. But if you can get second or third round pick for a guy that you're not going to sign anyway, and that third round pick, say it's a third round pick, comes a year earlier than what you might be able to get out of a comp pick for him in free agency, like you might as well, right? If he's not playing on all three downs anyway, if he's only rushing the passer, if they don't value him that much at at this point to give him that contract extension, you would probably be number one on my list just based on what you could get in return for such a good pass rusher. But yeah, I mean, Kendrick Bourne, I think, could be a possibility. Hunter Henry, I think it's tough to trade a captain. Um, I think that maybe that's a guy that you do want to extend if he wants to be back uh, moving forward here. But Kyle Duggar certainly could be on the table, though maybe they try to franchise tag him next year. I was just talking to uh, Brad Spielberger of PFF about this, actually, um, because he was kind of talking me, or I was was talking to him through some of the trade uh, possibilities on the team. The Duggar thing is tough because... Adrian Phillips is on his last legs at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, Jalen Mills is going to be a free agent. In theory, you could probably start uh, Marte Mapu in Kyle Duggar's spot next year and pair him with Jabril Peppers and then just kind of fill in that depth. But they like having three, four, five startable safeties in that defense. So I think that he might be the one that they value the most to maybe give that franchise tag to. So long story short, I, I guess Uche... Born and maybe Michael Wenu uh, would be would be the top oh, yeah. candidates on this. Team. Oh, Wenu's a good one. I mean, you yeah. could probably you get some value back too, especially if a team like one of these contenders has an injured guard. I mean, yeah, he's been one. He's been a really good guard for ever since he came into the NFL. That's a good one. So, if you look at this team right now, one win. Now the Bears have one win. The Broncos have one win. Chris, uh, Christmas Eve is going to be huge. Patriots Broncos to see who gets the better <laughs> draft position. Can we please flex that game? Can we flex I that wish. game? Like, it's it's I, a Saturday night, right? Saturday night. Isn't that isn't Christmas Eve Saturday night? So I think I it's think like it an NFL Saturday. network game. Nobody's going to watch mm-hmm. it. I mean, just get I mean, it out I mean, of there. That's such a great window, I would think. 
yeah. for, for viewers too that like i because i that's the it's a sunday night um it, it's that's the one game i'm not traveling to just because it was like why like why am i going to cover a game at 8 15 in denver on christmas eve but like please please get that game on saturday or like like Sunday afternoon, something where I don't have to be spending Christmas Eve night watching that Patriots game. Yeah, everybody watching that game that's a Patriots fan is going to be like 12 adult sodas deep trying to get through that (laughs) thing, especially considering it starts so late. But then now the Bears also have Carolina's pick. Arizona has one win. Carolina, what we need is Dalton to play more because they could get some wins if Dalton plays instead of Bryce Young because Bryce Young has not been good. But Caleb Williams, we know, is like the biggest prospect, I would say, probably since Trevor Lawrence. Like this guy is incredible. You also have Drake May, who's going to go somewhere in the top five. I would guess somebody moves up to two to get him. Unless, like, if the Bears get the first two picks, they're like, okay, we want Marvin Harrison Jr. too. Like, I could see somebody staying there and saying, hey, we want to make sure we get Marvin Harrison Jr. But the number two pick, you could probably get a lot for that. So, I mean, Quinn Ewers is probably from Texas going in the first round. He reminds me of, like, Herbert, like, ridiculous Herbert Armstrong, but doesn't really know how to play. Like, some of the decisions he made in that Oklahoma game. We'll see if Sanders comes out. You have J.J. McCarthy at Michigan. And then you start to think about, like, there's a lot of quarterbacks that could go in the first round this yeah. year. So who's in, do you think Drake May is, like, legit inside for the Patriots based on the rest of the season? Like, I, they they could end up with a top three. They, I mean, a top yeah. five pick, I don't feel like, is out of the question at all. No, I I, I mean. Penix, I too. Tend- Penix is I another guy. I, I was going to say, Michael Penix has got my, got my U-Dub. Washington, oh, yeah, right U-Dub. Now, yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it, I, I tend to think that they're probably, unfortunately, going to turn this around well enough to not be within that, like that top five mix, but talent wise and the way that they're currently playing, like this team shouldn't win another game for the rest of the season. So I don't know. I mean, that's, I think what they should be striving for. And like we were just mentioning with the trade deadline, like accumulate more picks, try yeah. to get as much draft capital as you can in order to potentially move up. Uh, for one of those quarterbacks. It does seem like it's going to be a pretty heavy quarterback class, uh, but clearly you want your your pick of the litter there uh, near the top of the first round. But um, yeah, no, I mean, Michael Penix is definitely an interesting one. Uh, he's a lefty, which makes everything look a little bit odd. I talked to a scout last year uh, who wasn't that high on Michael Penix, but like I, I was I was thinking about UW and I don't want to go too far down a UW rabbit hole right now, but like if you... If you could pick the Patriots' current quarterback and wide receivers or the University of Washington's current quarterback and wide receivers, I think I'd take Washington's. <laughs> I think I'd take, as someone who watches a lot of Washington, like Michael Penix is a great quarterback. And they've got Romo Dunze, Jalen Polk, and Jalen McMillan as their wide receivers, all of whom might be in that first round mix. I'd be like, no, just give me those guys rather than who are, who are on a pro NFL team right now. I wonder how many teams you could do that with across the country. Like USC's guys, you could certainly do right. it with too, right? Just yeah. because of the... Like most people think that Caleb Williams would come into the NFL and already be a top 10 quarterback in the league. That's how highly people yeah. think of Caleb Williams. All right. So, Doug, before we let you go, most likely scenario in 2024, Bill coaches the Patriots, Bill retires, or Bill coaches another team? That's a good question. I think the most likely would still be Bill coaches the Patriots, but like wow. barely. I. Yeah, I mean, it just, I, I don't know. That's such a hard question. I think it would go Bill coaches the Patriots, Bill retires, Bill coaches another team as my list, as my order there. But number one and two are like, are so close. I'm just, I'm not ready to like predict a Bill Belichick retirement at this point. You know what I mean? Like that, that's just a hard thing to, to lay on the table right now. 
Yeah, I, I think that the the other team is a possibility if Kraft moves on where Bill like wants to get his revenge and he sees these other situations. Yeah. I've been talking about the Chargers. My boss talked about the Chargers. Bill actually mm-hmm. brought up to like Washington, like if they decide like Ron Rivera is going to go like that, that yeah. that defense somehow stinks, which is like yeah. amazing. And they may say, hey, we have a high pick. Do we take a quarterback early? Like maybe Bill rebuilds there. I think the Chargers would be like a good fit for Bill because he's got like a ready-made winner with Justin Herbert at the quarterback position, although that organization is stake-bitten, but it's going to be interesting. The, the one thing I'll say, if they do move on from Bill, they got to bring in a new GM too. Like they can't yeah. have like macro sticking around because if he's helping Bill with this stuff, <laughs> it's not gone well. Well, that's the thing. I think that you need to just blow up. Like even if this team goes 3-14, and 14, how do you say like, okay, Gerard Mayo is our head coach or, you know, or Bill O'Brien's our head coach. Like, I don't think that you can do that if this team is that bad. And I'd love Gerard Mayo to be like, I'd love for that to be a possibility. But I just, I think that if they do, if Bill either retires or gets fired or whatever it is, I think that you just have to completely blow up the entire power structure of the organization and start, start anew because yeah. what's currently in place is not working. Um, yeah, no, it's, I, I did want to go on one, like, 10-second Cole Strange rant real quick. Go ahead. They picked, they picked Cole Strange in the first round. Not only was he a guard, not only was he an undersized guard, he was a, like, 24-year-old undersized guard out of Chattanooga. Like, that, like, <laughs> it, I, I people have been, like, around the media have been saying, like, is that Bill's worst first-round pick? I think it has a strong possibility of being Bill's worst first round pick. Wow. Just because of how obvious it was that that was not a first round caliber prospect and now how poorly it's gone to start. So there's my 10 second ran on Paul Strange. And Sean McVay, even though they said they weren't, they were laughing at the pick. <laughs> laughing. Yes, Le- laughing. Le- legit Openly laughing mocking. at the pick. Yes. <laughs> That's unbelievable, man. It's oh, unreal. God. Like, I, I, when they made that pick, I was flabbergasted. I'm like, yes. What are they doing? Like, as you, I didn't even realize the age thing. He's 24 when you drafted him. Yeah, I mean, he's an old, like, usually old, small school, undersized prospect. Like, that starts at, like, the third or fourth round. I remember the Patriots were obsessed with Harvey Longy way back when he was coming out of the draft. And, like, had would have taken him in the first or second round or whatever it was if he came out early. But then, since he was 25 coming into the draft, he went on draft and they signed him as an undrafted free agent. Like, Cole Strange was only a year older than him. It's just, yeah, it is what it is. I'm looking at Cole Strange right now. So, he was born in July. I'm trying to see, like, okay, so Tatum was born in March. So, Tatum's, like, a couple months older than Cole Strange. <laughs> <laughs> And and I know it's, you know, it's different. Like Tatum came out of his first year, but this is like one of the established best players in the NBA. And he's barely older than Cole Strange, who can't get on the field for the Patriots. And they drafted him in the first round out of Chattanooga. I'm sure he played in the senior bowl, right, Doug? He did play in the senior bowl. And I think that even then, like his results were a little bit spotty in practice in the game. Like it wasn't like a, oh, he dominated the senior bowl. I don't know, man. It's that, that was a... That was a pick that I certainly would not have made. Completely shocked the hell out of me when they didn't make it. And now it's it, uh, that whole draft, honestly. Like last year, it looked great. This year, it's looking terrible uh, because at least you thought that you could get like a, a decent backer quarterback and Billy Zappi, Pierre Strong, all these guys. And like half the guys now are off the team at this point. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I guess the best player is probably going to be Jack Jones, right? If we ever see him on the yeah. field. Right. If he can get back on the field and like Marcus Jones, that's not looking good at this point either. 
yeah, it was it was a bad class. After a, you know, everyone thought that the twenty twenty one class was great too, but and obviously like that was more successful. Christian Barmore is not doing a whole lot. Mac Jones stinks. Ramondre Stevenson's averaging two point eight yards per carry. Like even that yeah. class now at this point isn't looking that good. That one is bizarre to me. The Ramondre thing. I know the line hasn't been good, but he's dead last in the NFL in rush yards over expectation. Dead last. Yeah. He's one of the best running backs in the league last year. Zeke's outperforming him, and Zeke's not even looking that good. So that's one that I can't totally figure out right now either. I think that he does need more space to kind of build up his his momentum a little bit. But yeah, he's looking hesitant. He's being very patient. It's just, yeah, that is the run game is one thing that should be way better because, you know, they've said, yeah, we're, you know, we're getting after early deficits. We can't really run the ball. Like that's when it should be easy to run the ball though. Is when like even if you give them a few carries when you're down 21 nothing, like you should be able to pick up an easy six or seven yards just because the defense is defending against the pass and they can't even do that right now. Yeah, it's unbelievable. All right, that yeah. is Doug Kide from the Herald. Doug, thank you so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. I know this is a very difficult Patriots season, but I felt like this was fun. I mean, we had fun talking about the Patriots, <laughs> even yes. though the team stinks. Yeah, we could still laugh. We could still have fun talking about this team. No, this is a good time. Thank you, Brian. All right. Great stuff, Doug. Yep. Great stuff there from my buddy, Doug Kide. Always enjoy talking Pats with Doug. Coming up next, a Bruins preview. Connor Ryan from Boston.com and the Globe will join us to preview the B season that gets underway on Wednesday night. Get ready to start the NFL week off right, because right now all customers can get a no sweat same game parlay for Thursday night football. Just place a three-leg same-game parlay on this week's game between the Chiefs and the Broncos, and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. And I'm looking at Thursday night football, the Chiefs and the Broncos squaring off. I like the Chiefs, obviously, to win this game pretty big. So I'm going with this for a same-game parlay, plus 194. Chiefs to cover the 10.5 points for the game. Chiefs to cover the 6.5 in the first half. And the Chiefs to go over 30.5 points, even with Kelsey banged up. The Broncos, they gave up 70 points a few weeks ago, and they're playing Pat Mahomes. They're giving up seven yards per play, last in the NFL. 13 passing touchdowns, the most of the NFL. 5.9 rushing yards per attempt, last in the NFL as well. So I'm heavy on the Chiefs in this one. NFL same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. Visit FanDuel.com slash Pike so you don't miss out on your chance to get a no-sweat same-game parlay on America's number one sportsbook. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21-plus in president select states. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Boston.com and the Boston Globe as well, it is Connor Ryan. Connor, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We're almost here. The season about to begin. It's about time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, anytime, man. Obviously, enjoyed talking with you last year, so we figure, hey, let's do a little season preview here. So most importantly, let's start with Matthew Potra because he had the great preseason and you lose Bergeron, you lose Krejci with the amount of picks that this Bruins organization has sent out. They need some of these young guys to really hit for the organization. And look, I'm not second guessing it. They made the right moves. They were going all in for a Stanley Cup. You got to make moves like this. But Potra's a guy that has really high praise. And you look at it now, they really have, what, nine games to make a decision on whether or not he's going to be up. And you wonder now start the season it looks like he's going to be on the third line I think ideally you'd like him right to move up to that second line and move Coyle down to the third line but you tweeted out a couple of videos of him during the preseason one of the goals that he had so what have you made of him so far and what do you expect going forward I mean I have to imagine you think after nine days he's still going to be with the team yeah again it's one of those things where going into the preseason like you want to put up the uh the cautionary sign for these guys that are 19 years old, a guy like Patra, who's only really played two full seasons in juniors. Like, all right, you can see the poise, you can see the skill there, but is he ready to hold, hold his own over an entire season? But every time the Bruins, Jim Montgomery threw him a test, he aced it, right? Like, can he play with established guys like Marshan and Like, Yes. Can he play on the second leg of a back-to-back? Yes. Can he drive play on a third line with guys like Frederick and Geeky? Did that. Like, as much as I think you want to keep those expectations in check, this is the guy that's already accelerated kind of his timeline to the NHL. And when you, I think you look at that goal he scored going short side, dangling through uh, against the Capitals. Uh, you look at the Bruins uh, prospect pipeline over the years. You don't have a lot of guys that can do that, especially against NHL competition. That, that guy he dangled past was Evgeny Kuznetsov, a guy who's been in the league for a long, long time. So I, I think uh, it's definitely exciting. There's a reason why I think a lot of eyes are glued to Patra. Not only is he, uh, the prospect with the highest upside the Bruins have had in a long time. It's where he plays, right? This is the the one issue for the yeah. Bruins. It's been looming over them years and years now is what, what they're going to do down the middle once Bergeron and Krejci retire. And again, we don't want to run with him being the successor in that. But man, if he becomes an Anthony Sorelli, right? If he becomes a guy that can give you 40 points, 45 points, that can play a solid two-way game, maybe he has more to give but it can anchor a, a top six role, especially when you have a lot of high-end talent on the wing, you'll take that. And it might happen as soon as this year. And I found it interesting that Brad Marchand compared him to Mitch Marner. And I know some yeah. people in Lofty Toronto praise. were not happy with that, but does does his game remind you of Marner at all or no? Yeah, I think probably Toronto fans are probably cursing the hockey gods that this was the year the Bruins weren't going to have any centers and this guy kind of comes out of the blue. But yeah, you see a lot of that, that skill set. Again, Mitch Marner is not a guy that's, physically imposing. And even when I think Patra puts on some muscle up at the NHL level, he's not going to be this guy that's going to be rocking guys over or anything like that. But I think, you know, you see he's an elusive player, but kind of similar to Marner, he's just smart with his positioning. Like he got knocked down a couple of times against uh, the Flyers in one of these preseason games. 
gets back up, but does a really good job of not putting himself in a spot where he can get really walloped against the glass or anything like that. He's a really cerebral player that kind of reminds you of Krejci in that regard. Like maybe he's not the flashiest guy. Like I don't think uh, Potra is going to be a player that even if he's a productive 60 point guy, I don't know if his highlight reel is going to be this him dangling three guys. It's not going to be like Pasternak, but uh, again, I think you saw for over 16 seasons, a guy like Krejci who methodical thinks the game kind of maybe five seconds ahead and kind of see the ice really well. If Potra is playing at, at the top of his game, he can kind of replicate that kind of production. Just the way his IQ, I think, even talked to Jim Montgomery, Cam Neely, that's what stands out. It's the, the skill is obviously there, but his IQ, his way to pick up things on the fly, learn the Bruins kind of uh, in-depth D-zone coverage, all that's been really encouraging so far for him. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it. And speaking of prospects, you have Johnny Beecher, too. Big dude, obviously 6'3", 215 pounds, obviously older than Potra too, played, what, three years at Michigan. Seems like kind of the perfect fit for that fourth-line center playing with Lucic. Like this, it seems like that's the type of player that he is, though, that he'd be a fourth-line guy. Obviously, a huge body. But what have you made of him throughout the preseason? Yeah, I think he's done a really good job at fitting into what that role is. And I think, you know, Beecher is one of these guys that is going to play with that label of being a first-round pick. And I'm sure if when you're taken in the first, you know, 32 picks, you're expecting a guy that at the very least can give you 40 points, 50 points, what have you. Um, again, there's been plenty of other guys who've carved out really established roles in a bottom six spot, like a, a Riley Nash or, or players like that, that bring value just of being a capable NHL player who carry out their role. And I think you look at Beecher, again, he has a lot a lot to, to work on in terms of maybe his offensive game. But I think you look at the skating obviously sticks out. He's 6'3", 216, has never really shown a – hesitancy to be really physical he kind of reminds me if he hits the nhl level a little bit like a sean corrali like six three really good skater and again maybe he's not the most punishing guy he's not a luchich but when you're you have that much weight behind you you can skate that well you can be a heat seeking heat seeking missile on the forecheck kind of whenever you're in there as well so i think putting him with luchich can lead a lot of really positive results especially if you have a guy like uh jacob lauco on that other side too another guy that skates really well kind of incites chaos whenever he's out there on the ice. Like that could be a, it's already going to be fun having Lucic back, but those two guys, especially with their speed, can make that a, a fourth line that's really fun to watch and a, a fourth line that you probably hate to play against if you're the other team. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding about that part. It's not great. <laughs> They're not going to say that's a big fourth line. So one guy that didn't, of course, or it won't start the season with the Bees is Mason Lari. So Last year at, what, Ohio State, 32 points, four goals, 28 assists in 40 games, which is just, it's ridiculous numbers, right? And it actually, he seems like the perfect defenseman to play like Jim Montgomery style, where he wants the yep. defenseman active in the rush. We saw that a lot last year. Lindholm had his best season. McAvoy was great, of course. When he came back, like Orlov was the perfect fit. Unfortunately, of course, he's now playing with Carolina. But in terms of Laura, I know you wrote and... Jim Montgomery basically said today that he needs to get 25 minutes a night before he comes up. Like he's going to get more playing time if he plays in Providence. And you kind of hinted at your article, like Bruins fans may be upset about this, but this is probably the best thing for him. So you feel like starting the season with him down in Providence, eventually he gets up with the bees at some point this season. It seems like that makes the most sense for the player and the organization. Yeah. I think that benefits kind of all parties involved. I think maybe it's just the fact that Patra's in this spot where he can either go between the NHL or juniors. People, I think have this conception that 
if you get sent to Providence early on, it's like, you know, you're getting sent to the gulag. Like you're not going to come back. You're, <laughs> you're stuck down there for the whole year or anything like that. It's like one, Providence is a very nice city. Like there's no need to besmirch Providence. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and two, it, it's something where, again, this other guys have done this before. Like David Pasternak, his first year, uh, really showed that, that high-end skill in spurts and preseason play. Still needed to work on other things. Like Mason Lorai, you look at his profile and what he could be at the NHL level, he probably has the highest upside among all your prospects. I mean, this is a guy that is a playmaking defenseman at 6'5", 216. Like, his floor could be a third-pairing kind of sheltered power play ace, or he could be like John Carlson, like 6'4", like playmaking wow. guy that can give you 60 points. Like, that's a guy I don't think you really want to rush. He actually only switched to defense a couple of years ago. He was a forward and then had about a – a five inch uh, growth spurt. And that's how we kind of switched really? over that. So he's a guy that, again, the, the poise with the puck is there. Um, still needs to work a little bit on just the D zone fundamentals, which every defense, I mean, even if you're a, a stay at home guy, you have to work on that at the AHL level. So when you look at the way the Bruins are set up on defense right now, there's nothing wrong with giving Lori 25, 30 games in Providence where he's going to get 25 minutes a night and get power play reps. Like even if he was to, break camp with the Bruins, he wasn't getting power play time with guys like McAvoy and Lindholm and Grizzly and all those players out there. So let him marinate down in Providence. Um, again, I think you look at his preseason, he's accelerated his timeline of, I think going into into the year, people thought that this was a guy that needed a full year down Providence. Would not be surprised if he gets to December, January, and he's in the mix and he's staying up there for good. Because if he does hit the, the skill set and how he kind of presents himself as an NHL player, there really is a lot to like there. Well, and it's exciting, too, just from a fan's perspective, where you went through the heartbreak last year of the Florida series, and you're like, oh, where is this organization going? So it's great to hear, and obviously Patra's starting with the Bees, it's great to hear, like, you have some, at least two big-time prospects in the pipeline that could help you in the near future, especially when you're trying to carry over from the bergeron Krejci era now with Pasternak and, of course, McAvoy and Lindholm sort of being the core of this group going forward, among some other guys. Like, we'll see if they get a deal done with DeBrusque eventually, but it does feel like this is a good sign that you can develop some of these guys because you feel pretty good about two of your top defensemen going forward and Lindholm and McAvoy that are all signed to long-term contracts and Pasternak signed long-term as well. So they're going to need some of these young guys to hit. So this is definitely a positive development for the organization because I don't think it, it wasn't a given, right, that Patra was going to come up and be on the team no. to start the season. I think it was more unexpected, right? Yeah, I think you even look at even a guy like Beecher, a guy like Laura, I still think that Going into the season, you are probably a, a year or so away from a lot of these guys hitting. And you can focus in on maybe some of the other blue chip guys they have, like a Fabian Lysel, who needs more seasoning. I think people mm -hmm. thought that all these other guys are going to be in that same boat, that this was going to be very much a, a bridge year. You hope these guys hit. Uh, again, we'll see what happens over the course of an 82-game season. But at the very least, as you said, you've got a pretty good foundation with guys signed long-term and McAvoy, Pasternak. Um, if a guy like Laura can prove his worth and stick around, if a guy like Padra can build as being part of that post Bergeron era Bruins, there's a lot to like there. Cause again, this is a team that has a lot of guys signed long-term and a whole bunch of cap space opening up next year. If you can have a guy like Laura anchor into a spot in, in the top four or a guy like Padra that you think is a future top six center, you're in a pretty, you're in a pretty good spot in terms of, you know, are you a, you're right back to being a proven cup contender. That remains to be seen, but at the very least, you're setting the foundation for a sustainable 
uh, team that's going to be in the mix year in and year out, which is, I think, what the Bruins envision. They don't want to be a team that bottoms out and hits rock bottom in a couple of years. They don't want to be the 2023 Patriots or anything like that. They don't want to <laughs> hit, hit, hit a spot like that. So it's good to see some of these younger guys step in and hopefully can fill in some of those spots uh, moving forward. Yeah, the good news is I certainly think they're a long way away from being the 2023 Patriots. All right, so we mentioned the blue line that you lost Orlov, and he played well in that Florida series despite a bad turnover, but he was kind of perfect, as I alluded to, in Jim Montgomery's system. But overall, you look at sort of the defense core, you still have, you had the top three guys last year in plus minus in Lindholm, Greslick, and Carlo, right? And we know Forbert, what he can do on the penalty kill, even if he's not the perfect player. McAvoy, top-tier defenseman. You bring in a guy like Kevin Shattenkirk, obviously not the guy that he once was, but you feel at least pretty good about the top six, right? Especially considering the fact that at some point, maybe Laura is up as well. You've, do you feel pretty good about the defense core entering the season? Yeah, I think in terms of the, the strengths and the foundation of this team, it's all going to be kind of built from the back out with the goaltending and defense. And as you said, you've got five of the six guys back that even before you got Orla, before you added guys to the deadline, you still were, I think, 43 and eight. So you still had a pretty yeah. good decor in place there. <laughs> um, I, I think you look at, so about how these guys are using their roles and you look at Campus Lindholm was a guy who I think took a huge step forward last year. I think Charlie McAvoy has even more to give. You look at last year of uh, jumping in, you know, a few weeks into the season, didn't really have a training camp, was coming off of major so- shoulder surgery. Right. He's kind of mentioned like how much, again, you as a pro athlete have faith in the the strength and conditioning staff to getting you up to speed, but there's still that mental block when you get your first game after not having camp of like, all right, is the shoulder going to hold up here? Like, you know, you still have that in the back of your head. He mentioned how much, you know, of a, a weight is lifted off his shoulders, not having to deal with that going into this year. So I think he has more to give in that spot. And those are two Norris caliber guys that night in and night out are going to account for 45 minutes of your ice time on different pairs, right? You have two, guys that can anchor that spot and again whether it's Borbor and uh Shattenkirk stepping in there Lori filling out a role later on like you have the talent in place that in terms of your defense and your goaltending will be able to keep you in most games like the I'm sure we'll talk about it but the forward core a little bit of a different story but as long as you have that foundation of strong defense strong goaltending you're still going to be in a whole bunch of one one goal games that you should be able to grind out and get points at a pretty steady clip well, and you mentioned the, the Norris Trophy, like Lindholm finished, what, fourth last year? Yeah. And you sort of look at, I was looking at the odds on FanDuel right now. McAvoy's plus 1,500, the ninth shortest odds, which, I mean, just in terms of if you want to put a couple of dollars on that, that's, that's some pretty good value, especially if the Bruins, say, finish second in the division or somehow maybe they finish, look, it's a loaded division, but say somehow you finish first in the division and McAvoy's a large part of the reason, like plus 1,500, that's not bad odds. Yeah, no, and he's a guy that, I feel like it's going to be one of those situations with McAvoy where I don't know if he'll ever get a Norris because maybe even at his best season, I don't think he's going to be a guy that gives you 80 points that a guy like McCarr or Adam Fox yeah. can give you. But in terms of his overall skill set, it's you guys that can eat up that many minutes, can still give you 50, 60 points. It can hit like a freight train when he kind of lines guys up. Like, Kill oh, McCarr is yeah. not doing that. Adam Fox isn't doing that overall skill set. He's almost kind of the jack-of-all-trades in that regard. So I would not be surprised if he's a, a top-five finalist, which has kind of been the case year in and year out. If he's playing 75, 80 games, he's going to be right in the mix in terms of just what, how he can impact a game in so many different ways. Yeah, I look forward to watching McAvoy again this season. I feel like he's primed for a big year. Not that he didn't have a big year last year, but 
So the Bergeron lost. Now, Marchand takes over as captain, of course, but just on the ice. I mean, Bergeron, like, it's not just, he had a really good season. I mean, he won the Selkie, right? Yeah. And I was looking at some of the numbers. Of the 252 forwards that played at least 800 minutes of five-on-five, just 18 goals against with Bergeron on the ice, best in the NHL. They outscored teams by 28 goals on five-on-five with Bergeron on the ice. 71.9% goals for percentage was first. So... Besides the leadership aspect to this, you look at Zaka bumps up to that first line, and you were mentioning having losing Krejci, losing Bergeron, and how important it's to develop some of these guys, and not that you need to develop Zaka, but now he's going to have an opportunity to be the first-line center of the Bruins, right? So in last year, you look at Zaka's numbers, and I get it's not all at center, but 5-on-5, the Bees outscored team 65-39, so by 26. His individual numbers on 5-on-5, 43 points which yeah. was second on the Bruins. Now, a distant second to Pasta, who was at 61. And I get part of those, the reason those numbers are so good is because he played with Pasternak, but he's going to be playing with Pasternak again. You feel like pretty good in terms of obviously the the chemistry that those guys have built up. But with Krejci and Bergeron now gone, what do you expect from Zaka now where he has obviously had a huge role in the team last year, but this is a bigger role. I mean, these are big shoes to fill. Yeah, no, I mean, it's going to be a tough ask for him and Coyle in that spot. That's almost why I think Quatra, I feel like it's it put so much responsibility on him, but that's a guy that if he can hit and can end the year in a top six role, that's why it's so important. Because I think if you're asking Zaka, especially to be a, kind of like your new Krejci in terms of being the guy down the middle of a very offense first line, like last year, I think they had, what, 60% of their starts in the offensive zone. Like that was a line that Jim Montgomery was like, all right, we're balancing out. We're putting Pasternak away from Marchand and Bergeron, and that's going to be our offense line. And I think you look at what Saki did last year. As you said, really productive at five-on-five five play. He probably has more room to grow in the fact that he's going to start the year on the top power play unit, replacing Bergeron at the bumper spot. Like, he's a guy that, again, you looked at, like, uh, two years ago when Eric Halla looked like Las Vegas Eric Halla with David Pasternak. Like, you staple anyone next to Pasternak's hip, they're probably going to put up points. And Zaka, you know, kind of proved his worth in that regard last year. So if you're building a a line with him and maybe Van Riemsdyk, or it could be whoever slots in there eventually as like your offense only kind of line, your spark plug, which you're going to have to rely on as you wait for a lot of these other lines to kind of settle out and find out who has chemistry. I think there's a lot to like of what Zaka can give in that role, especially if he's already shown that chemistry with Pasternak. The biggest challenge is how I think a guy like Coyle does is the you know the one-two punch next to him because I think if you're Coyle or if you're Potter or whoever else you're gonna have to be more of a two-way kind of line kind of like how Bergeron was not last year but in you know the 2013 kind of underrated Bergeron era where he was still really productive but was also getting 30% ozone time was shutting down guys like that might be how Montgomery has to kind of toggle how that top six is used if you're going to give a lot more reps in the offensive zone to Pasternak and Zaka. Yeah, and that's why I think the Potra thing is so important because, I mean, you had an article last year about Coyle. I feel like, and this is not meant to be an indictment on Coyle, I feel like he had a great, I thought he was good in the playoffs, and he's like the perfect third-line center, right? I remember that article you wrote last year about how many defensive zone face-offs he took and still like the five-on-five numbers were ridiculous. And I do feel like that's kind of the perfect role for Coyle because we saw a couple of years ago he's kind of overtaxed as the second line center where he has to create more offense so you'd like to have him back on the third line but he's certainly capable of being up on the second line I feel like Coyle and I know it's like part of it is because he's a local guy he's really turned into a fan favorite he's a good playoff player too I mean even going back to 19 he was good in the postseason yeah no he's a guy that again it's I feel like it's always 
you feel like you're putting an indictment on him by saying he's a great third line center, but that's where his role is best utilized. Like last year, as you said, he was like your shutdown defenseman who is uh, your shutdown forward who is still landing punches in the offensive zone. And again, maybe he can unlock a little bit more offense with a guy like Martian, but him and DeBrusque yeah. over the years really haven't had a lot of tangible production together. Again, it's you look at the way he possesses the puck, you look at how DeBrusque is always at the net front. It would make sense that those guys would gel immediately, but sometimes it's just how these things work out. You look at him and uh, friend Frederick last year, they like worked seamlessly together. It's just the way these guys kind of complement uh, each other's skill sets out there. And again, it's why if Potra can step into that role and, and can skate next to a guy like Marshan and DeBrusque, if you bump Coil down, it's almost like how you looked at the lineup last year when you had Bergeron and Krejci. And again, it's not comparing those guys, but in terms of just what the domino effect is of, all right, right. where are guys best suited in their roles? If all of a sudden you can then put Coil back down at 3C where he's excellent in that spot, Next to Frederick, who maybe has a little bit more to give in that spot. Next to a guy like Morgan Geeky, who could have more to give with added reps from you know where he was last year, Seattle. All of a sudden, you, you have a forward core that you can see where it can kind of build, where you can get more established production. It's all going to, again, come down to the 19-year-old kid. Like, good luck, man. Like, already trying to stay <laughs> above flow, you know, stay above water in the NHL. But if you could get into a top six spot, that'd be even better. So good luck, man. Yeah, no doubt about that. And not asking too much. You're just replacing yeah. Bergeron, a legend with the organization, That's and David right. Krejci. No, no big deal whatsoever. So on top of the Bergeron and Krejci losses, Bertuzzi, unfortunately, signs with Toronto, which just sucks. I felt like he was the perfect Bruin. And speaking of Coyle, I thought he played really well with Taylor Hall, too. And I thought Taylor Hall sacrificed a lot for this team, considering yeah. this guy is a former MVP. And what he did for the organization playing on the third line, I thought he was, and ironically, Bruins are going to see him in the opener playing with Connor Bedard, right, which uh, for the Blackhawks, of course. But then you look at the signing, James Van Riemsdyk, which he's up on that pasta Zaka line. He's entering what is 34 year old season. And the Flyers somehow last year, like I couldn't believe this when I saw the numbers. They actually outscored teams on five on five with them on the ice. 34, 31, yeah. considering how horrendous that team was. Now, I loved Bertuzzi. I just and even Marshawn talked about it last year, like how he fit in with the team, because remember, there's the whole thing with him and Bertuzzi got into it previously. But yep. Marshawn, like when he got here, he's basically saying he's the perfect Bruin. But how do you think Van Riemsdyk fits on this team, considering the fact that considering who you lost? I mean, obviously, he's not going to give you what Bertuzzi gave you offensively. He doesn't really have the speed that Taylor Hall has at this point in his career. So what do you expect from him? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how he kind of fits into that role. He's definitely not going to be a Pertuzzi who would not surprise me if he's healthy, if he drops 35, 40 goals on a line with Matthews or Monner or whoever yeah. he's with in Toronto. It seems like it's almost inevitable. They might give up as many goals on the other end of the ice, but you know <laughs> we'll see how that kind of uh, matches itself out. But uh, Van Riemsdijk's really interesting, though, because it's almost like you look at the Bruins and how they approached plugging in these holes and they pretty much had to do with the limited cap space they had. It's all about kind of a, a money ball approach, right? Where it's almost like you look at the dollars and cents, you look at what these guys strengths are. And I think it's all about asking what, what you need out of these guys. Like if you had Bertuzzi, great. You could have him in the top six and you could be like, I can pencil you in for 65 points and you can put you at the net front and we know what you can do there for James and Reams, like for one year and $1 million. If you know, Nick Ritchie, who, is not a very good NHL player can be on the power play and give you 15 net front goals. I think James Van Reems, like if he's healthy, can probably do the same thing around that same level at a $1 million cap hit. It's almost like you have to view it as the 
the the Moneyball sabermetrics Billy Bean approach in terms of yeah. mapping out a guy. They need like the the big whiteboard like Jonah Hill has of like this is James Van <laughs> Riemsdyke. He's really good at the net front. He's only going to cost one million dollars. So we'll do that. Like I think that's kind of how you have to approach it with a guy like him, a guy like Lucic for making one one point two million in a fourth line spot. A guy like Geeky who had over thirty points, averaging less than eleven minutes of ice time per game with Seattle. It's all about where the value is for these guys and whether these guys have more room to grow. Or and I think in Van Van Reem's like case, it's what is he good at and how can we kind of cater to his skill set to get the threshold we're asking him for. If James Van like has 20 goals and 40 points, the Bruins will be doing backflips. But if he can give you, you know, 10, 11, 12 power play goals at the net front and chip in with 30-ish points, for $1 million, you'll take that. Again, would the Bruins love to have Kayla Hall, a Hart Trophy guy on the third line? Yes. But when you look at the cap space, uh, you know, mortgaging some of that cap flexibility last year with Bergeron and Krejci's contracts, you had to pay the piper at some point, and it's this year, but – they're going to try to finagle their way through it as this uh, season goes on. Yeah, and I think, too, he's got to be re-energized, right, after playing in Philadelphia for a yeah. horrible team. Now, not, it's not, not a great the, team. Yeah, it's not the Bruins from last year, but it's still a pretty good team that has, of course, expectations to get into the postseason. So I expect he'll, that'll be something that is, certainly helps him coming over here. Being motiv- uh, He's in his mid-30s, so obviously he's going to be motivated to try to at least make a run in the postseason. But you mentioned uh, Moneyball. What was it? Was it Kevin Euclid, the Greek god of walks? Is that what he yes, says? Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> he doesn't. Nobody wanted him because of like the weird stance, which I find exactly. amazing that in like the early 2000s, people didn't value walks yet. I feel like that's kind of kind of linked to the party. How, it is wild how much that like just baseball has changed in that regard of like how archaic it was. And now it almost seems like there's like, I can't keep up with it in terms of like the new stats people drop. It's like yeah. crazy how quickly that sport has kind of moved. Yeah. Now it's like the opposite. It's like if you don't walk, nobody wants you, right? Like it's, now it's like now it's like we're fine with you striking out 180 times if you hit like 40. Like Kyle Schwarber, like yeah. you need a guy like that now again. Like it's almost like gone backwards. Yeah, it's really it is crazy. All right. So Pasternak runner up last year for the Hart Trophy, 113 points behind McD- uh, two guys in the Oilers, McDavid, of course, who won the Hart Trophy. But the 61 goal second behind only McDavid, and obviously no Krejci anymore. Zaka's still around, so obviously it's going to be a little bit different, but you still need, obviously, a huge season from Pasternak if you're going to be a team that is competing and trying to make a run in the postseason. So I'm looking at the FanDuel odds. They have on plus 1,200 for the Hart Trophy. That's the fourth shot, uh, shortest odds behind, obviously, McDavid's number one. The McDavid odds on FanDuel, it's crazy, man. Like, McDavid is plus 100 to win the Hart Trophy. Plus 100. And you can actually bet McDavid versus the field, which is crazy to me just because that's like Tiger Woods territory. To try to, like, they're trying to... They're trying to give you some value on McDavid because if you put McDavid anything worse than plus 100, everybody's going to be betting on McDavid. Like, FanDuel's like, we can't do that. It's crazy to see just the separation between those guys. Like, in a normal year, David Pasternak played on the team that set the record for points and wins. He was the best player on the team. It, he, was, he had no shot at winning yeah, the Hart Trophy. He had no shot. It's almost like, uh, I think it was way back when, when, like, Gretzky was still playing. If you did, like, fantasy hockey, I think you could pick Gretzky goals or Gretzky assists. Like, you didn't have, like, the same player in some of those <laughs> leagues. So it's almost getting to that point with a guy like McDavid, which, which is a testament to uh, his level of play. But, yeah, you're going to need a a huge year from Pasternak. As much as we can 
it's been positives about James and Reamsdyke and Potra and these guys having more room to grow. Which I, I think they do, but you also have to be realistic. This is not going to have the the same amount of firepower as last year. You're going to need David Poston to kind of be your cheat code on offense, which he can do. You can have a game where nothing yeah. is going on offensively, and he can one time a, a puck in on the power play and give you guys momentum. So you're definitely going to need him to keep up that high level play. Is 60 goals going to be an option? We'll see, but he's at the level where it's almost expected if it's not 45 goals, you're thinking, well, what happened there? Yeah. Well, FanDuel actually has, for 50 goals, he's plus 136. I think it would be a little bit more difficult to get to 50 this year compared to last year, obviously. He actually is plus 1,000 to win the Rocket Richard. Now, obviously, the leader in the clubhouse is going to be that McDavid guy again, but plus 1,000, that's like... Those are pretty good odds, too, like in terms of if you're looking to sprinkle something in. So I'm interested to see Pasternak and the post-Bergeron, Krejciera as well, see what he can do. But you, you think he gets to 50, or do you think it's more like 47, 48-ish? Yeah, I think I had a prediction down for 48, and I think it's 48. You want it. Yeah, you look at just the amount of you're going to have to build some chemistry with a lot of these different groups, even with Zaka in on that power play. It's a different wrinkle now having a left shot guy at that bumper spot where it might mm. be a situation where instead of getting a lot of one-timers, it's a lot of feeding it to Pasternak who then feeds it back to a guy like Martian who maybe becomes more of the, the trigger guy on that power play unit. Like, again, David Pasternak so gifted offensively that he could be a guy that gives you 48 goals and 60 assists and you're still around the same point total. But I could see him maybe being more involved as, an, as a, a playmaker, especially on that power play, if it ends up being... Zaka is the one feeding him uh, with the left stick there. Yeah, it's a good point about Zaka filling in for Bergeron. That could affect the points in terms of the power play, or the power play goals, I should say, at least for Pasternak. All right, so getting to the goaltenders, Olmark, of course, won the Vesna. He did have the rough series against Florida, but we all know that he was dealing with an injury too, and we've talked about it a ton that they made that switch a little bit too late. But Swayman also had a great season, which I, I kind of feel like it goes under the radar, or it went under the radar until the playoffs when everyone's like put Swayman in the net like until that point his season was kind of like he was still what fourth in save percentage fourth in goals against he was outstanding last year so in terms of the duo if you will who do you think has the better season like I'm sort of leaning towards Swayman considering he's younger got another year under his belt like I kind of think Swayman is like when we get say and assuming and knock on wood that the Bruins make make it to the postseason my assumption is and my prediction, I should say, is that it's actually going to be Swayman starting game one this year, not Olmark. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think it just one comes down to the fact of just the the natural regression that comes with that goaltending spot. And I don't think Linus Olmark's putting up those same video game like numbers. And it's not to say that all of a sudden he's going to, you know, drop to like a nine ten save percentage or anything like that. He's kind of consistently been a nine seventeen, nine eighteen guy over the last couple of years, even on some really bad Buffalo teams in years past. Like He's still a very uh, good goalie, but I think you look at Swayman, what he uh, did last year, uh, as you said, like fourth in state percentage. I think he was second overall in high danger state percentage, which is kind of the, mm. the mark of a guy that can really turn, you know, stop those momentum changing goals and give his team energy. He's really good in that regard last year. He's also probably pretty motivated. I don't know if he's really that happy about settling on a one-year bridge deal with the Bruins after being a guy that, yes, he's not the the established number one goalie. Uh, there's probably about 28, 29, 30 teams in the NHL that would give up a whole lot to have Jeremy Swayman be their number one guy. So I think he's really motivated um, as much as, you know, him and Olmark have talked about their friendship and the goalie hugs. 
It's also he's they both mentioned it's fueled by, you know, being competitive. Like they know if they if one of them takes a step back, runs cold for an extended stretch, they're losing the net. Like you, the Bruins are have the luxury of having two really good goaltenders out there, and I think this is a year where a guy like Swayman does take a big step forward and, and really establishes himself. Now, is that going to mean it's a 60-40 split? No, but I think kind of like how it was last year, even with Swayman getting hurt, if it's 55-45 or something like that, I could see that being the case with Swayman getting more of the reps in that regard. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I think I think Swayman's going to have an outstanding season. And, of course, the big change with the captain, Marshawn, nobody was surprised that it was Marshawn. I know it came down to him and McAvoy, but you kind of have to give it to the guy that was part of the team that won the Cup. I guess now you have a Lutrich pass, so you have two guys from that Cup team in 2011, the only two guys. I could see him having a bigger year, too, just because of the fact that, like we mentioned with McAvoy, he came into the season injured as well. And it took him a while to kind of have some consistency in terms of his goal scoring. I thought, again, going back to what I mentioned with Coyle, he was one of the guys that actually was good for this team in the postseason. So what do you expect from him, like sort of taking over in that leadership role? Like how much changes with him now that Bergeron's out of the equation in terms of the leadership role? Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to see how he kind of stamps his own mark on this team, right? I mean, this is a guy that has been more or less Bergeron's understudy for, for years now, right? And I think it's something for him where I think you look at the the post-whistle antics, all this stuff with Martian. He's a guy that I think at his core is very cognizant of, one, the responsibility that comes with being the captain. It's something that he's mentioned he really took to heart um, after Bertrand did get to see on his sweater and kind of following his lead uh, in that spot. But he's a guy that also is very much a lead-by-example guy. You know, you talk to a few of the Bruins, they mentioned that. He's a guy you want to play for because he's the first guy, you know, it's the cliche, but he's first guy in, last guy out. Uh, this is a guy that went from being a, you know, fourth line pest, a guy that people didn't think was going to get out of the AHL, be a career AHL guy that just beats up guys to being arguably for a pretty extended stretch of being probably the best left wing in the game, best all around left wing at least. Um, and he's fueled by that, you know, that competitiveness, that chip on your shoulder. And I think that bleeds through through the rest of the team. I and mean, this is a guy that, Maybe isn't the same, you know, cut from the same cloth as Bergeron. But, I mean, it was one of those preseason games where, uh, you know, early October, not a lot going on. He's playing like it's a game seven, like <laughs> causing fights, drawing penalties. <laughs> like, I th- I think that rubs off on guys. Not to say the Bruins are also going to become like the 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 heel Bruins of like they're just going to muck things up the whole time. But I think you, he's a guy that year in and year out, especially when you get to the playoffs, like he's the one that usually generates those momentum changing shifts, whether it's a, a hit. Uh, getting guys mixed up after the whistle, all those things. I think that's going to resonate with a younger, more physical team this year of like, all right, we maybe have lower expectations, but he's a guy that sets the tone pretty much every single game he's out there. So uh, again, he's kind of in the same spot as uh, McAvoy, where I think going into a season healthy now after having double hip surgery will do him some good, even though he's a little bit of an older player, obviously at 35. But he's a guy that I'm really looking forward to see how he meshes with a changing locker room and how he kind of built his own legacy, right? Like this is a guy who's been connected to Bergeron for years now, but he it's his, it's his room now and, and he, he should be able to make a pretty impressive kind of uh, legacy for himself as the go-to guy. It's crazy thinking about like how he came up the rat and now yeah. he's the captain of the team. It's, it, it really is amazing. It, it is, it, yeah. The transformation that he's gone through throughout his career. All right. So last year, I thought that Jake DeBrusque was sort of the surprise for the Bruins. Like, remember, he had the trade demand and then he fits perfectly like Montgomery and him. Like, 
I was listening to Montgomery talk about him the other day, DeBrusque. I'm like, geez, he really loves Jake DeBrusque. And of course, he set a career high with the 50 points in the 64 games. It would have been much more if he didn't get injured. And of course, the winter classic game when he scored two goals too and he, he yeah exactly like the broken the broken leg yeah, the broken leg but who do you think could be sort of the surprise for the team this year I, I guess like DeBrusque we always knew he had the talent but was it ever going to manifest itself on the at least with the Bruins was it going to work here with the Bruins is there anybody that you look at and say okay this guy could be sort of the surprise yeah I, I think beyond looking at the younger guys like Patra or Lori I think that those are the guys that are a given I, I think one guy that actually has more to give uh, it might be odd saying it as a Portland guy is Lauko. I think Lauko is a guy that people were up in arms with when he made the NHL roster last year over Mark McLaughlin. The Bruins clearly saw something in him in terms of just what he brings every single night. Like guy does not stop moving his feet when he hops over the boards and whether it's, uh, you know, dropping the gloves, adding energy that way, really, really good skater, uh, landing hits on the floor check. I mean, this is a guy that drew 11 penalties in 23 games last year. I don't know if he's going to keep up that pace, but, and that wasn't like him doing it off of just being like, you know, Frederick early on in his career, of just like bugging the the crap out of guys and making them lose their mind. It's all about, uh, you know, getting uh, interference calls, hooking just by blowing past guys with his feet. Uh, and I think he's a guy that, again, is he going to be a 25 goal guy? No, but I think he has a lot of room to grow in terms of being a really impact uh, fourth line guy, or maybe even a guy that, would end up on the third line if he does build on his offense game a little bit. I think there's a lot to like about what a guy like Lauko can bring over a full season. I like it. That's a good one. I like it. All right. So before I let you go, Connor, just on FanDuel, so they they have the bees at the eighth shortest odds to win the cup at plus seventeen hundred. I think that's being the eighth shortest odds. I think that may be a little bit high for the Bruins. But if you look at it, they are the second favorite to win the division at plus three fifty. Toronto plus one eighty five. Florida plus five hundred. And of course, Tampa's dealing with the injury to Vasilevsky to start the season. So that's why they're lower on the list. So where do you think they end up? Second in the division, third in the division, playoff team? What's your prediction here? Yeah, I have them uh, second in the Atlantic, which I think people view as maybe being a little bit high, but I think it all comes down to, like, I think we're all cognizant of where this team needs, has more room to grow, especially offensively. You need a lot of guys to hit. A guy like Potra, but I think you look at the foundation of this team, uh, of where it is in terms of uh, you've got arguably the best one-two punch in that you've got a uh, really stout decor, which in and of itself, those two things, you're at the very least, you're like the Islanders from a few years ago. Like you can grind out wins, get in the playoffs and be a tough out. If, you know, you have guys like Poitra that can hit, uh, if a guy like Van Reems guy can, can hold his own in his role. And you still have a lot of elite high-end talent in the top six on the wing with guys like Pasternak. Like as much as I think there was a lot of doom and gloom or, or people were expecting a major step back, which, I will preface it by saying this team could lose 16 more games, 16 fewer games than last year and still have 100 points. Like, they're still in a pretty good <laughs> spot. Like, again, you could they could be pretty – take a huge step down and still be a very good team. Um, but I just look at the way the foundation of this team is built and you add in the, you know, the cheat codes up front like Pasternak and the expected contributions that you're seeing from guys like Potter or DeBrusque, Frederick, all these guys uh, further down the lineup that I think have more to give. Uh, I think they're going to be right in the mix, especially when you factor in, as you said, Vasilevsky. Uh, the Panthers are going to be without, I think, Ekblad and Montour to start the year and didn't really add any, you know, top four uh, blue liners back there as well. Different story in the playoffs. We'll, like, again, Florida is a team that if they get back to the playoffs, can do a lot of damage. But in terms of just punching your ticket to the playoffs for right now, I, I like where the Bruins are uh, in the Atlantic division. 
Yeah, I like the Islanders comparison, too, because one of the things from last year, we always talk about Montgomery's system in terms of the defenseman getting in the rush and the offense improving. They were still number one in the NHL in goals against. So that was part of their ethos all season long, too. It just kind of went under the radar because we talked about Olmark a lot, but we didn't talk about how great this defense was because we and we rightfully so we're infatuated with how well they played offensively, the difference between Cassidy's system and Montgomery's system. All right, that is Connor Ryan, covers the bees for Boston.com, the Boston Globe as well. Connor, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. We'll talk again down the road. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right, great stuff from both Doug Kide and Connor Ryan. With Doug, and we've been doing this over the past couple of weeks, it feels therapeutic talking about this Patriots team right now with how poorly they're playing. And enjoy talking with Connor as well because I'm, I'm really excited for the NHL season. Can't wait to get this thing underway, see what the new look Bruins look like, even though I felt like last year was their last best chance to win a cup. Now it's basically the Pasternak, McAvoy era of Bruins hockey. Obviously, they've both been two of the better players on the team. Pasternak has been the best player on the team for the past couple of years, but now it's really their team. And I know Marshawn's the captain, but it's their team going forward now that Bergeron and Krejci have retired. So excited to get this thing underway. And Getting to see the Bruins go up against the number one pick, Connor Bedard, on opening night for the Bruins on Wednesday night is going to be awesome as well. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.